I studied emotions, thoughts, and behaviors for four years. Here's what I learned. So each one of these topics can have its own 20-30 minute video, but I figured this is a very easy way to just give you a quick little taste test of a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of a tidbit, and then if you enjoy it, you can let me know and I can make a full video on it. Ready? Number one thing that I learned about studying psychology. No one has all the answers. Not the professors, not the PhDs, not the psychiatrists. You can go talk to a medical doctor and say, hey, explain to me um, cardiovascular function, function of the heart. Explain to me functions of the brain and how Alzheimer's affects it. They'll give you a bunch of great answers. The moment you ask them, hey, talk to me about mental health. What do I need to do to have great mental health? There is no guarantee. You can do all the right things. You can take your medication, you can exercise, have great friendships, have a loving job, have a loving spouse, and still not have good mental or emotional health. So when it comes to mental health, it is one of the most complex and still not understood areas in all of health. When you mean physiologically, whether you're talking about bone structure, heart, lungs, respiratory system, brain. So mental health is still pretty much in the dark. So that's number one. Number two, not all thoughts matter. In an extreme case, most of your thoughts don't actually matter. Why? We think, oh, because I had a thought, it must be true. And we start to intertwine thoughts with facts. So-and-so doesn't like me. You have to sit back and go, is that a thought or is that a fact? You're in traffic and you're thinking, hmm, what if I just swerved my car into the other side? What if I just drove through and tried not to hit anybody and if I scratched their car, so what? What if my supervisor says this to me? I want to say this to them. I wish I could tell them what I really feel. Folks, just because we have a thought does not mean we have to act on it does not mean we're a bad person. Just because you're a parent and you have the thought of, man, I wish I could just tell my kid to shut up, doesn't make you a terrible person. Just because you have a thought doesn't mean you're going to have a certain behavior or act on that thought, okay? And this relates to the criticism of others and the criticism of ourselves. A thought is just a thought. Just because we have a thought doesn't mean it's true and it does not mean it's a fact. So keep that in mind when those thoughts start to come up about especially judgment when you're judging yourself, when you go through life, and when you're judging other people, and when you're making judgments about the world. The world is X. Today, I am X. I should have done this. Why did my friend do that? So keep that in mind. Number three, emotions serve as messengers. When you have an emotion, it's your body telling you, hey, there's something going on beneath the surface that we need to address. If you feel angry, and please do not do this in the moment, don't go, okay, let me think about logically why I feel angry. Mm -mm. Understand that there's levels of intensity. And as time progresses, this emotion is going to become less intense. And as it becomes less intense, as your amygdala becomes less activated, it's going to be easier to calm down. So in the moment of high intensity of emotions, whether it be anger, whether it be sadness, I'm generally focusing on negative emotions, but it can be any sort of emotion. Don't try to think your way out of it in the moment. Just kind of sit with it. Accept it. I'm not saying it's a good thing, but accept it. Okay, I'm feeling this right now. Okay, fine, whatever. I, run, I recognize it has to run its course. 
Go do something. Go go do an action. Go out for a walk. Talk to friends. Exercise. Whatever you want to do. And then when you've calmed down, think about, okay, because I accepted this emotion, I didn't get angry at myself for feeling this. Like, that's a terrible one, right? You feel angry, and then you feel guilty about feeling angry. Or then you feel sad, and someone says, you shouldn't feel sad. So now you feel guilty about feeling sad, which makes you feel even worse. So after the emotions calm down, you can look back and go, I accepted the emotion, but now let me think about why did I feel that way? When my girlfriend or my boyfriend did this, I started feeling this emotion, why? Oh, because when she did that, I looked at it as being disrespectful. And I looked at it as she doesn't trust me. And that made me feel frustrated. Then you can understand that all your emotions are ever trying to do is be a messenger of something. Okay? Number three. Just because you have a big emotional reaction doesn't make it true. It's similar to the thought idea. Just because my friend makes me really, really, really angry doesn't automatically mean that me getting angry was the right thing to do. Or I am justified in being short with them or being aggressive with them or speaking in a rude tone. Sometimes something happens and you feel angry or sad or frustrated. And then when you calm down, you look at the situation, you go, you know what? If I just change the way I look at it, it's really not that big of a deal. Like in the moment it was, and I know what I'm saying sounds like gaslighting and it's not, right? With What we're doing is a dialectic. In one breath, I'm telling you to accept your emotion. And in the other breath, I'm saying, hey, recognize just because you feel a certain way doesn't mean it's necessarily true. And all that means is if you're really, really angry at someone, that doesn't mean that they actually did something wrong. They could. They very well could have. But an emotion does not guarantee that what I'm thinking is right. Maybe I had a false belief about someone. They do something. I feel very strongly about it. But then when I find out the rest of the story, oh, that's why they did it and someone else told them, oh, the emotions calmed down. So just because I feel a certain way strongly does not make it true necessarily. Next one. You cannot control how people treat you. What you can control is how you allow yourself to be treated. So many times I see things on YouTube and TikTok of how to make your boyfriend do X, how to make your supervisor, how to make your friend, how to change this person's behavior or beliefs, how to persuade and do this and that. And it's like, look, to a degree, there's certain things you could do to try to influence someone. But I think to say that we can control other people's behavior is, is grossly exaggerated. But what we can do is we can control how we allow ourselves to be treated. So when I talk to you and I go, look, I recognize what you did. You know that I'm 100% against it. If you do it again, this is what's going to happen. That is me setting boundaries. And then when they do it again, I have to follow up. Why? If I don't, I've just set a precedent that shows, oh, Daniel likes to bluff. He sets down rules, but when you break them, he doesn't actually follow them up. So it's really, really important how we allow other people to treat us. If me and you are in a conversation 
And mid-sentence, you cut me off once, you cut me off twice, you cut me off three times. Indirectly, I'm telling you, hey, I have an important thought, but if you cut me off, I'm just going to stop talking. Or if you say something harmful, silence, that's an option. Me saying something harmful or mean back, that's another option. Me calling you out on it, being confrontational, being avoidant. These are all options. So we can't necessarily control how people treat us. But we can only focus on ourselves and what we can do on our end in relation to allowing people to treat us a certain way. So sometimes I hear things like, oh, my boyfriend did this and my girlfriend did that and blah, blah, blah. And my first thought is, I can't believe you tolerate that sort of behavior. I don't tell them this because it's in their own relationship. But that's what I'm thinking. I'm going, look, you picked them. At some point or another, you said, this is my girlfriend. This is my boyfriend. So if they act in this certain way that you don't like, just remember, you picked them. And if you stay with them, you are choosing to tolerate that behavior, which is fair. Next one. A lot of times in life, it is inappropriate. First of all, no. It is always inappropriate. I'm going to give an absolute, you ready? To give individualistic solutions to a societal problem. And it is inappropriate to give a societal solution to an individualistic problem. The tricky thing is oftentimes it's multifactorial, which is just nerd speak for both are involved. I'll give you an example. You know, if we talk about dating, the hardcore individualistic answer is, look, if you're a guy, just make a lot of money, have a six pack, get a little bit taller, get stronger, get a new car, get a new haircut, then you can be in a relationship. And if you're a girl, just look better physically, make sure you buy the nicest makeup, make sure you're always posting on Instagram, make sure you're blah, 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 blah. So we give you all these individualistic things that you can do right now in order to be desirable and lovable, right? That's the individualistic approach. The societal approach, because look, it's not your fault. Dating is messed up. This generation is messed up. There's nothing you can do about it. So might as well just sit at home and look at this guy. So the tricky thing is the societal one doesn't sound very empowering. Like there's not anything you can do about it. It's just your generation. It's a problem. The individualistic one is giving you this false idea that if you just work hard enough, if you just get that haircut and get nicely dressed, you can address this quote unquote problem. But the, the not delusional, but the inappropriate part is that an aspect of it is societal. So when we have societal expectations, I can't overcome that simply by focusing on individualistic solutions. So we recognize that in many parts of our lives, we have to be careful. Because sometimes it's just a societal thing, sometimes it's an individualistic thing, oftentimes it's both. And we want to make sure we don't just give you individualistic solutions, for a societal problem. If you're at a workplace where you're getting harassed by your supervisor, me saying, look, you just have to be more resilient and tough. That's probably not the most ideal advice, right? The question is, 
How long have you been working there? Is anyone else getting harassed? How long has this guy been doing this for? Do you have reports? Can you go to HR? What's going on? Not just, well, you got to toughen up because you need the money. Next thing I learned. Relationships are complicated. We have many relationships in our lives and sometimes we take a stereotype for granted. Like, oh, kids must have great relationships with their parents because they're their parents. Not necessarily. You can have parents who are very close with you geographically, but that does not mean you are necessarily intimately close with one another. Because of hardships, because of the way you've grown up, because of possible abuse or miscommunication or just not seeing eye to eye, not an understanding of one another, you can have people who are quote unquote your parents or your siblings or your wife or girlfriend and you guys don't get along very well. It happens. Just because they're insert family relation doesn't guarantee it's going to be a happy and healthy relationship. Next tip, because I totally forgot what number we're on and we're still going. Oftentimes, we wait for a feeling to engage in a behavior. But if someone shows up with depressive symptoms, that feeling is rare where they're going to say, I want to go out for a run. I want to see my friends. I want to pick up the violin again. And in those cases, oftentimes, we talk about engaging in the behavior first, and then the feeling comes afterwards. It's like, I feel depressed. I'm going to wait until I feel like seeing my friend again. Or, I feel depressed. I don't want to see my friend, but I'm going to go out and see them anyways. And when I see them, nine times out of ten, it's going to make me feel better. And then I come back, and then I feel better. And because of me feeling better, I want to see you more often now. This is what we would call, nerd speak is behavioral activation. Or, as you'd known it, maybe discipline. Where you do, excuse me, you do something, even though you don't necessarily want to do it in the moment. But you know it's good for you. Still with me? We're almost there. The number one way. First of all, let me say this. Parents are always teaching their kids. Non-stop. 100% of the time. But they don't always know that they're teaching. Albert Bandura, social psychologist, I believe it was called social learning theory, hits home this idea of modeling. And this has been around even before him. But when a child at the age of seven, eight, or nine, they look at mom and dad and how they interact with the world. How do they drive? How do they deal with conflict? When mom and dad get mad, how do they resolve said conflict? When dad goes to the cashier and the cashier's rude to them, what does dad say? And parents model what at least a kid thinks they should behave in society. And then, you know, certain stuff changes when they start hitting the preteens, 12, and they hit that teenager stage, 13, 14, 15. But at least beforehand, your only real idea of the world is what mom and dad tell you and what you watch them do. The next little tidbit is if you want to learn about relationships, forget self-improvement gurus, forget online courses, forget 
I was going to say forget books, but John Gottman has got some books out there. So I won't say that one. What you want to look into is attachment theory. Oh my goodness, folks. If there was one scientific evidence-based theory, again, it's not a fact, but it's a theory, I would cannot recommend attachment theory enough. What is it? Here's what it is in a nutshell. Your relationship with your parents at a very young age, maybe you've heard of things like secure attachment style, anxious attachment style, ambiguous attachment style, defines your relationship as an adult 20, 30 years later. In other words, a baby that keeps crying when she's three years old, whenever mom leaves the room, has an extremely high probability to be very clingy when she's 32 years old and has a boyfriend. Whereas the baby that's very, what we would call it, has a secure attachment style where they cry a little bit if mom's not there, but then they get themselves together, they compose, they play with toys, and then when mom comes back, they hug mom, they love her, they're friendly. You take that baby, there's a high probability that when they're 25, 30, 35 years old in a relationship, they're going to feel very secure. That if their partner goes out on a business trip, they're not going to be clingy. They're not going to be worried that they're being unfaithful. They have a lot of security in themselves, in their partner, and in their relationship as a whole. The next tidbit is about personality. You want to talk about zodiac signs, you want to talk about astrology, Daniel, what are you? I'm a Capricorn, I'm a walrus, I'm a sea lion. That's amazing. Folks, the biggest model in all of personality, if you want to learn more about yourself, is called the Big Five. There's tests online for free. One of them that I did myself for actually a class of mine, for a personality psychology class, it was called, I think, one, two, three tests. One, two, three tests, Big Five. It's completely free hundred and something multiple choice questions you do it then it tells you about yourself so look if you want to learn more about yourself why not approach it from a science-based perspective that's based on studies that's based on evidence well but Daniel what about astrology astrology in our world and this is gonna tick a lot of people off is a pseudoscience a pseudoscience means it sounds very scientific but it's not actually based on science like no one did a study and said, whoa, look, we ran a double blind uh, control study and we found blah, blah, the group this was this and there was a placebo and we had the experimental group. It does not exist. It hasn't been done. So if you're interested in personality, the big five, I believe it's called one, two, three tests, whatever, online. There's many free out there. That's what you want to check out. When we look at Mental health disorders, whether it be ADHD, whether it be depression, whether it be anxiety, these show up differently in different sexes. And what I mean is a girl's symptoms of ADHD are going to be different than a guy's symptoms of ADHD. And when that's the case, we can oftentimes have people who go to their doctor or go to their psychologist or counselor with the same symptoms, but because you're a girl, you get a different diagnosis that a guy would get even though he goes in with the exact same symptoms. Girls are two to three times more likely to experience depressive episodes or anxiety episodes when compared to boys. The hardest time for young people when it comes to mental health disorders is between the age of 13 till about 24. 
13 to 24 is when it gets unbelievably tough if you look at reports of depression and anxiety especially when it comes to young girls when it comes to mental health the most popular form of therapeutic orientation or is it what do you even call therapeutic orientation? let's say therapeutic model is cbt cognitive behavioral therapy and the reason that is it's because it has the most amount of studies backing it showing that hey look this works it doesn't necessarily mean it works better than psychoanalysis or that it works better than like person-centered therapy or existential therapy but because of the amount of evidence because of the amount of studies that have been conducted cbt is something that people are a big fan of right now and a lot of mental health practitioners are getting training in that what is cbt in a very short word how your thoughts affect your feelings and your behavior and how there's an interplay of them all interacting with one another all the time the last thing or should this be the last thing okay we'll, we'll decide i don't want to overload you what theoretical model is the most successful in therapy is it psychoanalysis psychodynamic theory person-centered therapy existential therapy feminist therapy postmodern therapy gestalt therapy cbt behavioral therapy the answer is they're all equal and the most important thing the most important thing that will decide if therapy will go smoothly or not is the rapport between the therapist and the client so as long as the client and therapist get along their theoretical orientation of the therapist whether they believe in freud's dream analysis whether they're talking about suffering and whatnot like victor frankl talked about in existential therapy whether they want to talk to you from a feminist lens isn't actually as important what's more important is that the client likes you they trust you they believe the therapist has the best intentions for them they believe the therapist is capable of helping them and they get along and if you have those things it actually trumps like the importance of having a psychoanalytic background versus any of the other backgrounds all right folks with that i'm going to leave it there you can do with that information as you may if this is a popular one or if people are interested i'll do a part two if not enjoy take care of yourselves and hopefully you can use one new thing that you learned today to better your life or the life of the people around you take care everybody Bye bye